This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumela Lezondi and I'm with Amanda Machaka, Wasani Matebula and Nedu Chemane. Your top stories. Ghanaians head to the polls for presidential and parliamentary elections tomorrow. The African Diaspora Forum concerned about comments attributed to Joburg City Mayor regarding foreign nationals. In economics, Nigeria plans to sell 302 million US dollars worth of bonds on December 4. And in sports, the 13th FIFA Club World Cup gets underway on Thursday in Japan. Amanda Machaka has the news. Thank you, Spomelele. Good evening. A former militia leader who took part in a campaign of violence across Uganda is appearing at the International Criminal Court for one of the most important trials in its 14-year history. Dominique Ongwen was among the most feared leaders of the Lord's Resistance Army, LRA, a rebel group blamed for the deaths of about 100,000 people and the abduction of 60,000 children. He's accused of war crimes and crimes against humanity in the northern Uganda and neighboring countries. Human Rights Watch says the opening of the ICC Trial of Ongwen is an important new chapter in holding the rebel group accountable for its brutal crimes. Associate Director in the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch, Elise Kepler. We'll go back to that story later. A Saudi court has sentenced 15 people to death for spying for Iran. The 15 were among 32 people comprising 30 Saudi Shiite Muslims, one Iranian and an Afghan who were detained in 2013 on charges of spying for Iran and went on trial in February. A Sudanese court has released 26 people who faced a trial for protesting against a government decision to raise fuel prices last month. The group, including 12 women, were detained after riot police swiftly dispersed small rallies that were held against a fuel subsidy counts. They were charged with disturbance disturbing the peace. Several opposition politicians and activists have also been arrested for calling for anti-government demonstrations. Nigeria says aid agencies, including the United Nations, are exaggerating the levels of hunger and the strife toward Northeast to get more funding from international donors in the last few months. Boko Haram insurgents, who have killed 15,000 people and displaced 2 million since 2009, have been driven back from an area the size of Belgium, revealing thousands of people that aid agencies say are near starvation. President Mohamedou Buhari says that the claims were being made by, among others, UN agencies about the region, where the United Nations says some 75,000 children are at risk of starving to death in the next uh, few months.
And go back to our top story. A former militia leader who took part in a campaign of violence across Uganda is appearing at the International Criminal Court for one of the most important trials in its 14-year history. Dominic Ongwen was among the most feared leaders of the Lord's Resistance Army, LRA. A rebel group blamed for the deaths of about 100,000 people and the abduction of 60,000 children. He was accused of war crimes and crimes against humanity in northern Uganda and neighboring countries. Human Rights Watch says the opening of the ICC trial of Ongwen is an important new chapter in holding the rebel group accountable for its brutal crimes. Associate Director in the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch, Elise Kepler. The International Criminal Court opened an investigation into crimes committed in northern Uganda as part of the conflict between the Lord's Resistance Army and the government in Uganda in 2004. This was after the government of Uganda requested that the International Criminal Court conduct investigations. Um, They opened those investigations, and the International Criminal Court ultimately issued arrest warrants for five Lord's Resistance Army leaders, um, including the very well-known Joseph Kony, Angwin, and three others. In fact, at this point, uh, the others are believed to have been killed. That's the latest news. Thank you very much, Amanda. 1705 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest. Ghanaians are tomorrow heading to the polls for presidential and parliamentary elections. These will be the country's seventh multi-party ballot since the end of military rule in 1992. The presidential race is expected to be a closely fought contest between incumbent President John Dramani Mahama and opposition challenger Nana Akufo-Addo. Ghana is frequently described as one of the most stable democracies in West Africa and has witnessed several peaceful transfers of power. More from Dr. Nana Obong, who is the president of the International Standard Journalists Association in Ghana. Everybody is very anxious. It looks like elections where nobody can actually predict what's going to happen. You can tell from the noise being made people rallying, the advertising and so on, that everybody is very serious. Each party, there are two dominant parties in the country. We have the NDC and the NPP, and it looks like nobody can predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, Ghana has enjoyed in the past a generally um, swift passover for power. Uh, we know that these elections are quite hotly contested. Um, do we envisage any issues um, as we uh, vote? No, I think it's just going to be like any other election. It's going to be peaceful and people will accept the outcome. We have nothing used to the idea that war or violence is not going to solve any problem. We've seen so many countries go through violence and it has set them back. So we have learned from the tribal conflicts and whatever from other countries and we don't want to repeat it. So it's going to be a peaceful election. I know that you said that it's anybody's game at this time, but um, having spoken to people, you know, on the ground, what are some people saying? Is there a sense of excitement and are the parties still campaigning at this stage? Right. What's happening is you have people still in doubt as to whether or not the system will be fair and free. So you have a few people saying, well, we want peace as long as it's free and fair and so on. But even if, even if, for the sake of argument only, some people perceive it to be free, so unfair and unfair. I don't see how you can move from a complaint to a mass rally or mass violence action. So I think even when people complain, 
at the end of the day, the Ghanaian culture, history, everything is that we will accept the results. Maybe if there's any dispute, it may have to be settled in court. But I don't see what's happening in other countries happening in Ghana. But the mood is very tense. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants their party to win. I see the presidential candidates are very tired. You can tell that from their voices. They've been campaigning. I think some of them don't even sleep. <laughs> they want to make sure that they win. Sure. It's only going to be one winner, as you know. So yes. Now, we know that, uh, Dr. Bong, there was an issue a bit uh, earlier on um, around uh, Ghana's Electoral Commission expecting journalists to pay the $2.50 to cover these elections. How was that issue um, dealt with? Have people been paying, or was this uh, particular issue resolved? No, the journalists, unfortunately, they had to pay because the test could not be resolved before the election. The court did not sit on the matter. So, this is an issue that will be resolved, I'm sure, after the election when we go to court and we try yeah. and figure out what to do. Because essentially, people have to pay in order to be accredited. And if mm. you didn't have accreditation, we're not going to allow you to cover the election from mm. the Electoral Commission, yeah. Mm. Now, just uh, before we let you go, what's the word from the Electoral Commission um, on their preparedness? I know you spoke about the candidates themselves, you know, having been worn out at this stage. But um, what's the word from the Electoral Commission? Is it all systems go for tomorrow? And what time will the poll will the polls um, be polling stations be open? Well, the polling station will probably start around 7, 8 o'clock. But the Electoral Commission claims to be ready. But we had special voting which took place on Thursday and on Sunday, and it didn't go as smoothly as it should. Maybe they've learned from that, because some people went to the station, their names were not on the list, and they were very frustrated, especially some of the security personnel. But we don't know whether it's the fault of the Electoral Commission or the people who are claiming to be voters who didn't put their names on the list. So that's yet to be seen. But from that mistake or from that problem, I'm sure... The Electoral Commission has learned and is very prepared to move forward. We want them to succeed because we don't want any problem where someone would say it's because of the Electoral Commission. You just heard from Dr. Nanao Bong. He is the president of the International Standard Journalists Association in Ghana, and he was in conversation with Zekona Meso. Your time is 1710 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pardon me. My name is Spumele Lezondi and I am with you until 1800 hours Central African time. Remember that you can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa 1. It is Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. If you want to send us emails, we're on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. If you want to send us emails, we also have an SMS line. That is plus 27796-957930. Plus 27796 the South African Diaspora Forum has this afternoon held a briefing in Johannesburg in South Africa to respond to utterances by Joburg City Mayor Herman Mashaba, who called on all illegal immigrants to leave the city. The mayor told a media conference while reporting on his 100 days in office that illegal foreign nationals living in Johannesburg must be treated as criminals since they came to South Africa illegally. To discuss this, so we are now joined on the line by ADF a chairperson, Mark Opafu. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Good afternoon and thank you very much for inviting me. Mark, could you just tell us about your views as the African Diaspora Forum on what the Joburg Mayor said last week? 
Look, uh, uh, the, the mayor's appearances are purely incite, uh, inciting violence. And uh, we, we are, as the African Diaspora Forum, very shocked to hear the mayor making those appearances because uh, the mayor should be aware that uh, uh, in, uh, in uh, Johannesburg, in Houghton, as, as the province, the past few months, the past few years, there were some challenges where many migrants were attacked, xenophobic attacks in, in, in the province. Uh, several people were killed, hundreds were displaced, many people were injured and injured for life. Uh, uh, so, so for the mayor to simply come out and say illegal migrants uh, doesn't mean anything if it's not only to incite people to violence. In fact, the mayor was saying that uh, uh, illegal people hijack buildings. But that's not uh, the work that uh, the migrants should do. The migrants um, uh, are illegal, certainly because government doesn't provide them with uh, uh, some documentation for them to be legal. So we would appreciate, appreciate if the, uh, the mayor speaks to the Department of Home Affairs to document the migrants who are uh, so-called illegal, instead of going out there using um, the media to tell people that uh, migrants who are in Johannesburg CBD are illegal. Uh, what is the main purpose of this if it's not only to incite to violence? So that, uh, that uh, what we think as the African Diaspora Forum, that the mayor came, he doesn't know where to start working, so he wants to lose uh, a very populist and a very xenophobic approach to divide our different communities. And we strongly condemn these uh, this, uh, utterances. Um, the African Diaspora Forum, uh, together with many South African NGOs, uh, today, this morning, decided uh, to go to the mayor's office on Friday at 11 o'clock uh, to tell the mayor our our disappointment, our unhappiness, and uh, that uh, we will be holding him uh, accountable for anything happening to a migrant in this city. Um, after 100 days of uh, in office, if uh, uh, that's uh, what he wants to provide us in the city of Johannesburg, which is the most dynamic city in the African continent, then uh, uh, I don't know how the mayor will manage uh, the people, the, the, the human being, uh, because in the African Diaspora Forum, we don't see any uh, person as a black, we don't see any person as, as white, we see human being, how he is going to provide uh, a clear management for him to be understood as the first citizen of this city, yes. uh, not inciting people to violence. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that's what we're going to tell and ask him. We will also be talking to his political party. Um, if, if the DA is sending uh, officials only to divide people, to incite violence, uh, whereby 
vulnerable people like uh, the migrant group can be killed easily. Yes. Uh, then uh, we need to uh, alert uh, the South African, the, both the South African, uh, the, 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 the South Africans and the, um, the, the international community. Mark, you're saying that he's inciting violence, but uh, he can say that all he said was that illegal immigrants must leave the city. How do you see that as inciting violence? Look, uh, it's very difficult to say to say that uh, you go to the media to talk about. Uh, as the media knows, uh, the department which, which, which is dealing with uh, with, uh, with documentation in this country. Uh, using the radio doesn't provide any documents to anyone. Yes, we will get to that discussion. The The question was, um, Mark, we yeah. will get to that discussion. The question was, uh, you say he was inciting violence. And the question was, how do you see that as inciting violence? We will get to the issue of documentation later in the discussion. Okay, okay the one thing is that uh, the, 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 the mayor was saying illegal people hijacked buildings. Uh, he want to use that he wanted to use that approach because he knows 16 years ago uh, uh, the city of Johannesburg wanted to actually root out all the people who occupied these buildings and uh, the city lost the case at the high uh, uh, the, the Supreme Court and uh, the consumer court they asked them to provide a temporary shelter to people if they want them to move from the buildings so so uh, the, the mayor knows that uh, if he wants to use a legal the legal approach he will never succeed because already the city lost that battle so he wanted the common South Africans to go and use violence to root out the people who are staying there. And that's exactly what we saw in 2014 when there, uh, I don't know if you recall about the Operation Fiela, uh, which saw the, 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 the Johannesburg CBD that uh, all the people who are in the Johannesburg CBD trading are migrants, only to find out when they started the operation that uh, the majority of people who were trading there are South Africans. So this same approach uh, that uh, the mayor wanted to use, using violence to, 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 to uh, actually root out people who are uh, staying in hijack buildings, thinking that um, uh, it's migrants who are staying there, calling them illegal people to incite violence for them to be rooted out by violence. That's, that's why we say he's inciting violence. All right. Um, and now let's get to the issue that you wanted to get to, um, the issue of uh, undocumented immigrants in South Africa. Um, why is uh, why do the majority um, of those that are undocumented don't actually have documents if they are in South Africa? Uh, look, uh, uh, that question should be put to the Department of Home Affairs. I suppose what I'm trying to get at, Mark, is, is um, why, maybe if you can just explain why people yes. would leave their home countries to get to South Africa and seek refuge in South Africa. Look, we all know uh, as Africans uh, what are the challenges that people are facing in the different com- countries. Uh, in South Africa, politicians are u- uh, use the politicians use this uh, this way by saying um, that if you don't have uh, 
people confronting if if you don't you don't have a war in your country there is uh, no way for you to come to to our country uh, so we cannot uh, provide you with the documentation what we are saying is that as the african diaspora forum is that uh, not only when there is war that uh, you uh, displace people uh, you you can displace people when they're facing some human rights abuses in the countries uh, and and people can also come to south africa for other reasons like the medical they're seeking medical attention people can they can come for studies and uh, yes we have economic reasons also but when people reach here South Africa doesn't provide so many options for them uh, to, 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 to get a documentation for them to be legal in the country. Because South Africa thinks that uh, if you grant a permit to, uh, to, to the people who are here, then you are encouraging other people to come. Then uh, other people will come and they will take over the jobs which are here and our people will be out of work. And we are saying this is a very narrow thinking of things. All right, just so it's by experience that uh, in some uh, European countries, and I'm going to take the example of Italy. In Italy, every three or four years, the government call upon all legal people to come and regularize themselves. After this, either people use that to move out of the of of, of the country uh, uh, out of uh, Italy, or they use it to establish themselves in the country and uh, and contribute to the economy of the country. We are, say, we are saying that if South Africa can provide the documentation to the migrants who are currently here, they'll be able to create small jobs, they'll be able to open bank accounts, they'll be able to contribute to pay tax. All right, just to get but clarity on that issue, on that issue, Mark, what you are saying is that even people who get to South Africa for economic reasons, um, who are looking for better opportunities in South Africa, you are saying that their stay in South Africa should be legalized and they should be, um, they should be given documentation to stay in South Africa. It will be difficult for you spending over maybe five years or ten years in a country illegally and somebody walk to your door and say, okay, today you have to pack and go. Uh, if 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 you are that person, are you going to accept? All right, Mark, you haven't you haven't answered the question though. Um, what you are saying is that when people um, are fleeing their countries of origin um, or leaving their countries of origin to look for employment in South Africa, you are saying their stay should be legalized in South Africa. Is that what you are saying? The people who find themselves here, either the, their economic migrants, uh, asylum seekers or refugees, should be legalized. That's what we are telling government. Because if you want to trace people, if you want to know the number of people who are in this country, you definitely need to have a database of these people. If, 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 you, if you, pro, you need to make some provisions for your public services, if you're creating some public schools or maybe the hospitals or the police, you need to think and aid to that because these people are human beings. They're now they're living in, inside your country and you, they won't disappear because you just decided not to give them the permits. So, so 
I think the best way to do it is to make them contribute to the economy instead of uh, marginalize them. Because they're they're becoming, if they are marginalized, they're becoming a burden to your economy. Uh, Because definitely if they are sick, they'll be walking to the hospital and you didn't make the provisions that they should be aiding. Uh, 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 in, 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 in that provision. Yes. So they're becoming a burden. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, Mark Bafu. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right. Mark Bafu there is the chairperson of the African Diaspora Forum, and he was talking about the remarks that were made by Johannesburg City Mayor, who um, said last week, as who are celebrating 100 days in office, that all illegal migrants should leave the city of Johannesburg. Namibia International Beach and Cultural Festival Landstrand Beach, Walfers Bay Namibia, 23rd, 24th, 25th of December Music Festival with international and local artists Fortnite accommodation packages and activities available at CompuTicket Travel Main event tickets available at CompuTicket 150 Namibian dollars, 150 rands and 130 pula Tickets are available at ShopRite and Checkers Get yours today VIP is 500 Namibian dollars, 500 rands or 380 Pula. Hashtag Xmas in Namibia. Hashtag Harambe. Cultures of Southern Africa route is powered by Channel Africa. www.culturalfestival.net. Download the app today. 1725 Central African Time on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now over 300 participants, many of them clinical professionals from around the world, are exchanging expertise, experience and research on torture rehabilitation at the three-day conference in Mexico. More than 100 presentations are addressing issues ranging from widespread torture in Syria, the refugee transit camps of Southern Europe and the plight of Central American migrants. The symposium is billed as the first global event to look in detail and across disciplines at how to deliver on the right to rehabilitation. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line from Mexico by Uju Akomo, who is the president of the International Rehabilitation Council for Torture Victims Member Center in Nigeria. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Uju. Hi, hi, how are you? I'm all right. Um, now, the conference is in its second day. How are you finding it? Yeah, it's indeed um, very impressive. Um, we're having a participation, of course, as you have said, from all over the globe. And um, it, it's very useful. But again, just a point of correction, I, I am not a president of City. I founded one of the City's member centers right. uh, in, in Nigeria. Um, but I actually sit as a member of the executive committee of City representing Sub-Sahara Africa. All right, sure. Um, and can you just tell us about um, experiences of torture that many people across Sub-Saharan Africa would have had? Yeah, um, basically there are different forms of torture. There are torture which will fall within the realm of the physical torture. There are obviously uh, torture that many have suffered in terms of uh, what you could see as psychological torture. Uh, some of the torture that people have experienced come um, basically through hands of um, state parties. Um, some of those are in terms of war, uh, even in places of detention. So you have um, migrants who have suffered torture. You have asylum seekers and refugees who have suffered torture. You have detainees in police stations, in prisons, in other places of detention across the continent of Africa. 
that have suffered from one form of torture or the other. You have persons in the various communities in Africa that have suffered from one form of torture or not maybe have also been traumatized in one way or the other. Mm. Um, and in treating these patients, would you say that there's enough personnel and enough people with expertise on the African continent to treat them? Yeah, we have um, an indication that basically um, there are different approaches that will have been found to work. Um, and, and let me just highlight the whole notion of um, uh, holistic rehabilitation. And, and in terms of this, we are recognizing the fact that treatment has to come from different professional backgrounds. So we need psychologists, we need social counselors, we need issues around livelihoods, so in terms of their economic rehabilitation, we need the medical, we need psychiatry, we need, you know, we need physiotherapy and all the rest of that. But let me also say that in terms of the African continent, in some of the jurisdictions, we have found that there have been very limited professionals in some of the core uh, technical areas. So, for example, you may find a country where they may not have enough psychiatrists or they may not have enough uh, psychologists. But in some of those jurisdictions, what has happened is that there have been approaches where you can take some lay counselors and train them and provide a process that gives supervision, mentorship, and other support so that you ensure that the quality of the service that has been delivered is also um, of, of good level. Uh, and so that's, that's the way that this has been uh, uh, dealt with. So I think there is quite a challenge in the continent, and it's important to mention it, because when you look at the whole notion mm. of right to rehabilitation, you are also talking about access. Mm. Are all Africans who require treatment because they have been tortured, do they all receive treatment? Right. What are the quality, you know, that, that those kind of issues, what the quality of the treatment that also being tortured? Yes. Um, and would you say that um, in Nigeria you have enough support as people are working in that field from all stakeholders to ensure that you provide the quality care that you're talking about? No, I, I don't think that any, any country in Africa, be in Nigeria, be it um, in any location in the continent, say that you have all the support that is required. That would be very far from the truth. Uh, basically, there is a need to ensure that in various countries in, in the continent of Africa that we have specialized rehabilitation centers that will need to be supported to provide the services. In addition to that, there is also an obligation of the state for us you know, to be able to ensure that as much as possible the treatment of those who have been traumatized are also mainstreamed within their normal uh, you know, health service delivery in the country. I think it, it is also important that the funding in this area, and as, as you yes. see, that in many of the centers in Africa, they, they not having enough funds being put to enable them to deliver services to the persons who require this is really a critical challenge. So the answer, simple answer to the question is no, we don't have all the support that is required. Uh, and I think this is time for Africa mm. to ensure that we come together to ensure, make sure that this is a need that really is addressed. Uchua Gomo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, thank you very much. All right, Uchua Gomo there is with an organization that's part of the International Rehabilitation Council for Torture Victims in Nigeria, and she is joining us there from Mexico. It's time for your news headlines. Here's Amanda Machaka.
Thank you, Spumalele. Good evening. Election observers in Ghana have expressed optimism that tomorrow's vote will go off without a hitch. The Coalition of Domestic Election Observers has met with Ghana's Electoral Commission and the country's police in the capital, Accra. A former militia leader who took part in a campaign of violence across Uganda is appearing at the International Criminal Court for one of the most important trials in its 14-year history. Dominic Ongwen was among the most feared leaders of the Lord's Resistance Army, a rebel group blamed for the deaths of about 100,000 people and the abduction of 60,000 children. And Nigeria says aid agencies, including the United Nations, are exaggerating the levels of hunger in the strife-torn northeast to get more funding from international donors. Those are news headlines. Thank you very much, Amanda. It's 17.32 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. Now, global and local experts within the renewable energy industry believe the time to champion renewable energy in South Africa is now, as the country's energy mix is currently being decided and debated. This is one of the key issues that were discussed at the United States Embassy in Pretoria's Energy 21 Exchange Hub meeting last week. The event, which drew over 60 people working in the renewable energy sector, focused on the tactics for telling the renewable energy story differently in the country. For more on this, we are now joined on the line from the United States by David Shelby, who is the Director of Public Engagement at the United States Department. Good evening and welcome to Channel Africa. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Now, David, could you briefly tell us what the purpose of the gathering in South Africa was last week? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so as you mentioned, I work with the U.S. State Department in Washington, so that's sort of our, our version of your Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, and a few months ago, our, our colleagues at the U.S. Embassy in South Africa reached out to my office uh, to say they wanted to explore opportunities to engage more deeply with South Africans on this whole topic of renewable energy because they feel like there's, there's a great story there and there's a lot of, of, of exciting things that are happening within the renewable energy field in South Africa. Uh, so I've spent the past few months uh, doing some research on what is happening and discovered that, in fact, there is a lot really going on and a lot to be excited about, a lot of innovation, a lot of entrepreneurship that's growing up around the renewable energy sector and the, particularly the renewable energy uh, initiatives that have been promoted by the Department of Energy there in South Africa. Um, and unfortunately, it seems like most South Africans are not aware of them. So we felt like this was an opportunity to bring together people who are working in the renewable energy sector uh, to talk about how we all do a better job of communicating really what's happened, what successes have been achieved, and what the benefits are for uh, South Africa and for, frankly, for the entire planet as there is a greater uh, reliance on renewable energy. Um, but not just for uh, environmental reasons, but also for really serious economic reasons. Um, there's a lot that has been uh, growing up around this industry, a lot of, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of uh, economic development programs that are being um, uh, integrated into the whole renewable energy sector as it's being built yeah. there in South Africa. So we just feel like it was a chance to bring people together and say, how do we do a good job, a better job of, of making people aware of this? Um, and from what you could gather, why are people not aware of what's happening in the space in South Africa? I think there's a number of reasons about it. Um, I, I would say probably the biggest reason is that really it's it's a very new story. So 
I mean, we've done a lot of research about people's attitudes um, in South Africa, but in other countries about people's attitudes towards renewable energy and their sort of understanding of renewable energy. And we find that people are still um, sort of uh, caught in this idea, which is uh, several years old at this point, that renewable energy is too expensive, it's too unreliable, um, that it's something that won't really work on a large scale. Um, but what people aren't aware is that through a lot of investment in renewables and a lot of um, developing of technology around this that's been done in South Africa and other countries around the world, um, renewables have become a very a viable and realistic alternative to fossil fuels moving forward. And so um, we just want uh, to sort of help people understand that actually renewables right now um, in many countries, and, and South Africa is one of them, are cheaper than other alternatives. It's cheaper... Um, in terms of the cost per kilowatt hour of electricity that you're going to generate to build a wind farm or a solar farm than it is to build, for instance, a new uh, coal-fired power plant. But that's actually a very recent development. So as I say, it's really only within the past couple of years that prices have dropped for a number of reasons, improving technology, uh, economies of scale with more people in more countries investing in this, improved supply chains. Um, so it's, it's a great story, but unless you're really watching this sector, you wouldn't be aware of that. So um, we want to sort of get that news out there to people who haven't been watching the sector and say, hey, you should look at this because this is a really exciting uh, new sector that's developing. Mm. Um, let's talk about that progress that you're saying is happening in South Africa. What can you share about um, a, sto- a story of the renewable energy sector here? Well, so um, as you may be aware, um, South Africa, the Department of Energy through its Renewable Energy uh, Independent Power Producer uh, Procurement Program over the past five years has uh, has gone through a number of uh, auctions in which they have uh, actually brought in independent power producers who have developed wind power plants, um, solar power plants. I think um, they're up to about 95 new plants that have been built just in the past five years. And um, that is brought in um, six, well, once all of the plants are fully operational, I think about half of them are operational at this point, but once they're all fully operational, that's going to be about six gigawatts of electricity into the South African grid, which represents about 7% of your total energy electricity uh, generation capacity, which that's a very significant development. Um, that actually puts South Africa on par with a number of developed countries in terms of the, the speed and the, the magnitude with which you're moving forward in renewable energy uh, generation capacity. Um, and to a lot of people who are still skeptics, what would you say to them? Well, I'd say to the skeptics, um, I, I appreciate a good skeptic, but um, let's, look at, let's look at what's been done. Let's look at the facts. Um, let's look at what has actually been achieved in South Africa. And as I mentioned, um, so the most recent round of auctions for renewable energy uh, generation facilities has uh, put the price of electricity generated by those about 40% lower than the price of energy generated by a new uh, coal-fired coal plant in South Africa, for instance. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of an exciting development. That's a very new development, but um, it's something that I, I want people to focus on and think about that. But that's not all. I'd say also look at the jobs that are being created in this, in this sector. Look at the economic development that's going on around it. Look at the industries that have been built up within South Africa around this. So five years ago, there were no wind turbine uh, manufacturers in South Africa. There were no solar panel manufacturers. Um, there were no wind tower manufacturers. All of these things exist now. Um, in large part because of the the work that the government has been doing in building out this program. Um, And it's kind of exciting. It's creating jobs. It's creating a tremendous amount of foreign direct investment. Um, 
on, on, on the, you know, the, the scale of billions of rands that have been poured into South Africa's growing renewable energy sector. Uh, and foreign investors and are very excited about this opportunity just because South Africa has been so forward-leaning. Um, so I think that's great. And, and, and it's opportunities as well as they say, you know, I talk about entrepreneurship that's growing up around this area. It's, it's not just folks necessarily with technical skills, though there's certainly plenty of opportunities there to develop technical skills around the renewable energy sector. But right. um, it's all through the economy. I mean, even my favorite entrepreneurship story around renewables in South Africa is, is a woman who has created a business to uh, clean off the mirrors at one of the concentrating solar power plants in Uppington. Uh, because that's something that has to be done, keep the dust off the mirrors, right? Yes. So it creates opportunities really across the socioeconomic sphere. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, David Shelby. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. David Shelby there is the Director of Public Engagement at the United States Department, joining us from the United States of America. Now, the invasive wasps, Vespula germanica, have become an all-too-familiar sight in many parts of the Western Cape in South Africa. Caroline van Seyl, who has received her PhD in the graduate ceremony of Stellenbosch University's Faculty of Agri-Sciences, says her research work in entomology about the insects was to establish if there might be indigenous biocontrol measures that can be used as an alternative or concomitant to chemicals to stop the spread of these invasive insects. Yes, sure. Well, I just finished my PhD degree on these wasps and my project basically involved looking, or one part of it involved looking at biological control agents that can potentially be used to control these wasps in specifically the Western Cape where we know they currently occur. Are they invasive wasps or are they from the area of the Western Cape? They're invasive insects and they originally came from, we think, either Europe or it could also be Australia or New Zealand. We're not 100% sure. But yeah, so they came from there and then into the Western Cape via, we think it's via air cargo, but it will also be via shipping means. How are they, their characteristics with regards to the situation of other insects in the area of the Western Cape? Are they aggressive or? Yes, well, we don't know that for sure yet because there hasn't been a lot of research conducted on this in the situation in South Africa. What we did, though, or what we can say is that in countries that they have, other countries that they have invaded, they have become a problem because they are, as invasive species, they are extremely competitive. So they would, say, for instance, eat the same type of food that a native species or insect would eat, and that would create competition. And obviously, if, if they occur in very high numbers, they can be dangerous because they sting people and they have a little bit of irritation as well, such as, you know, at picnic spots in public places like that. In South Africa, we don't know the exact impact that they have on the biodiversity, and that still needs to be researched. Their population density, are they growing or are they, how are they responding to the biodiversity in the area? There? As far as we know, they are spreading. Whether the population density is getting higher, I'm not 100% sure. What I saw in the past three years working with these wasps is that it seems like population density is increasing. But they are definitely spreading more and more, even though the spread is relatively slow compared to how fast they spread elsewhere, you know, other invaded countries. How best should we control 
the population increase of these wasps? The best way at the moment, there's an online reporting tool where the public can log sightings. If they see wasps flying around or made a wasp nest of specifically these wasps, they can log it. The website is www.edrr.co.za and then you can just go through the prompts there and the data is saved and it is used by some of the people, the teams that go out and take out the nest and remove it. Don't they have enemies uh, in the area, like for instance other insects who could prey on them? Natural enemies we don't know yet also. We found a few, or we found one fly species parasitizing on one of the invasive wasp species, but you know there needs to be, more research needs to be done before those type of things can be just released you know, into the wild. And the same with the biocontrol agents that I discovered that were able to infect these wasps, it still needs to be formulated into a product and also, you know, the non-specific attacks that it might have on other insects needs to be researched. So what I can say at the moment is that we have two biological control agents that work under laboratory conditions, but now taking it into field is, a, is the next step and the next step of research that needs to be conducted also. These invasive wasps, when did they come into the country from your perspective? The one species, which is called the German wasp, that one came in in 1974. The first specimen was found in Cape Town, or in Kirstenbosch specifically, and then the other invasive wasp species, which is the paper wasp, was found in Cales River in 2008. So we don't know where they come from, as you say. It would be either Europe or Australia or New Zealand. We're not sure. Caroline Fansail is a PhD graduate at Stellenbosch University talking to Wendele Kalipa, your economic news now with Wissane Matebula. In your economics news this hour, China and Egypt concluded a 2.62 billion US dollars three-year bilateral currency swap. Importers and economists say this will facilitate trade and improve foreign currency liquidity and cash-strapped Egypt. The country's central bank, which signed the deal with the People's Bank of China, said the arrangement could be extended by mutual consent. China has carried out swaps with more than 30 central banks around the world to increase the use of the yuan as a global reserve currency and to stimulate bilateral trade. South Africa's economy continues to slow down as different sectors are being affected negatively by both domestic and international factors. It has slowed to 0.2% in the third quarter from 3.3% recorded in the second quarter. The manufacturing sector contracted by 3.2% while the agricultural sector recorded the seventh consecutive decline. Chief Director of the National Accounts at States SA, Michael Manamela. Over the last those seven quarters when, when it was negative, the rent performed differently, appreciated, depreciated, and I think that depends uh, at what point uh, are the agricultural products being, being imported. So if you import them 
when the rent uh, is it's stronger because that doesn't really affect uh, your your input or at least your your price that much but when the the import the imports uh, are being made when the when the rent is weak obviously that that will that, that will have inflation and an impact on on, on inflation Malawi will start production of ethanol fuel from sugarcane once the Malawi Energy Regulatory Authority finalizes a pricing study as applied by for by the Press Cane Limited. This follows the launch of the renewable fuels program by the company after feasibility studies proved economic potential in the area that is likely to spare use of ethanol-driven vehicles in Malawi. George Mango reports. Like most of the countries of the world, Malawi depends on petrol and diesel. Fuel shortages in the past have had a drastic impact on the economy of the country. Hikes in petrol and diesel prices also affect the cost of goods and food. But Preskin Limited General Manager Christopher Guta says the company has already engaged Mera, which has also roped in the services of a consultant to evaluate the economic viability and cost of production. He said that Mera is taking the lead in ensuring that the decision that would be taken by government and passed on to Preskin as producers is based on solid foundation in terms of information. And South Africa's Bartles and NetBank say they will this week file legal applications similar to First Rent's decision to close the accounts of Ogbe Investments, a company controlled by the Gupta brothers. First Rent has been the first lender to publicly disclose reasons for severing links earlier this year with the family. Between December 2015 and April this year, all four major banks, including Standard Bank, Nerd Bank and Barclays Africa, terminated the accounts of companies controlled by the Gupta family without making their reasons public. Session Naidu reports. The bank says suspicions of money laundering lay behind its decision to close the accounts. The Gupta's lawyer, Harold van der Merwe, has said suspicions of money laundering were groundless. Van der Merwe said it took the accusation seriously and that it would deal with them in its own court application to be filed by the end of the year. Last week, President Jacob Zuma sent to Parliament an anti-money laundering bill that would have increased scrutiny of the bank accounts of prominent individuals, including himself. He declined to sign it into law, saying it might not be constitutional. Zimbabwe State Electricity Distribution Company has asked industrial customers to pay in advance in foreign currency for power imported from South Africa and Mozambique. This comes as generation from the Kariba South Hydro Plant slumps and because of a U.S. dollar shortage in the country. Zimbabwe is importing a significant amount of its power from South Africa and Mozambique, mainly due to depressed generation from the Kariba Dam. Power production from the Kariba power plant has fallen as a drought left the reservoir levels at their lowest in decades, while the country has been short of foreign currency for the month. Looking now at your financial indicators, uh, the dollar is trading at 13.82 South African rents, 10.55 Botswana Pula, and 9.8 Zambian Guacha. Also trading at 0.78 to the British pound and 0.93 against the euro. We move now to commodities where gold is trading at $1,173, platinum at $937 per fine ounce, and the spot price of Brent crude oil is at $54.57 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now.
Good evening, sport fans. With the latest Channel Africa Sport News at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. Starting off with football news, the 13th FIFA Club World Cup will get underway on the 8th of December in Yokohama, Japan, where seven sides will be looking to establish themselves as the kings of world football. The 8th edition to be held in the land of the rising sun this year presents a nice balance of seasoned regulars and new blood. Mamelodi Sundowns, Atletico Nacional and Kashima Antlers will be making their tournament debuts and the newcomers are joined by Gion Park Hyundai Motors and Club America, making their second and third appearance respectively, as well as old hands Auckland City and 2014 winners Real Madrid. One of the three sides making their first appearance at the tournament, Kev Champions League winners Mamelodi Sundowns will go into their opening game in Osaka brimming with confidence. A domestic league title triumph in May was followed by continental success in October and of the five nominees listed for the Kev's African Player of the Year based in Africa award for ply their trade for the Pretoria-based side. Still in football news, A construction firm has admitted that a cartel of firms fixed bidding for contracts to do work on stadiums for the 2014 Football World Cup, according to Brazilian authorities. State antitrust authorities said the probe was linked to the notorious Petrobras corruption scandal that has snared numerous Brazilian politicians. It said construction firm Andrade Gutierrez had spilled beans on the cartel activity after agreeing to cooperate with investigators in return for being spared sanctions. Among the building or renovation projects involved were some on Rio de Janeiro's fabled Maracana Stadium and the Arena Pernambuco in Recife. The Arsenal legend Lauren Etami Meyer will on Thursday join three coaches from the English Premier League side in a coaching clinic sponsored by betting firm Sport Pesa. The week-long training session is being attended by 50 coaches from local Premier League teams at the Kenya School of Monetary Studies in Nairobi. The Arsenal-trained coaching staff are aiming to install key principles of playing the Arsenal way to the local tacticians. This is the the second coaching workshop and follows with a similar event that was held in May as part of the Sports Pesas partnership with Arsenal. Our correspondent Francis Mutegi caught up with the Hull City Shed sponsors Chief Executive Officer Ronald Karauri on the training. This is the second coaching workshop and follows a similar event that was held in May this year as part of Sport Pesas partnership with Arsenal. The Hull City Shed sponsors Chief Executive Officer Ronald Karauri on the training. We believe uh, the coaches are the ones who leave the biggest impact. It will probably change in the future, but once we train the coaches, we know we will impact very many players at a go. One coach, if we train one coach, for sure we are, we are touching at least 20 players at a go. And that's why we chose the coaches to train. Lauren was part of invisible Arsenal team that won the English Premier League title in 2003 2004 season with the 49 games unbeaten. For Channel Africa Sports in Nairobi, Kenya, I am Francis Mutegi. On to golf news. Denmark's Thomas Abjorn was named as Europe's Ryder Cup captain on Tuesday with the task of reclaiming the trophy from the United States at League Golf National in Paris in 2018. The 45-year-old three-times a player in the biennial contest becomes the first Scandinavian to be handed the captaincy. Oh, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's obviously got to sink in and it's uh, I watched a lot of captains as a player and as a vice captain and I always wonder what that feeling uh, would be like to be the man in charge and, and 
heading of a team of, of 12 great players and, and now it's, it's my turn to do it. To lead them out would obviously be a great honour and, and the process all the way to Paris would be... Um, there's, there's so much to take in uh, when, when you get a phone call like that, but uh, waiting for it was, uh, was certainly tough. Bjorn was an assistant to Darren Clark at Minnesota's Hazleton National this year, when Europe lost 17-11 as the Americans ended a run of three successive defeats. The Dane had nothing but positivity regarding Paris being the location of the next Ryder Cup. It would be a, a superb venue. Um, I think um, people talk about the last four holes as, as great for the Ryder Cup, but when you look at the whole golf course, it's it's pretty spectacular. I think taking the game to France uh, and taking the Ryder Cup to France will be uh, a great spectacle. And they, The French do it very well. They'll put on a, a great show and, and I think they will do the game of golf very proud. The Dane, also an assistant in 2004, 2010 and 2012, played in the Cup in 1997 under Steve Ballesteros and in 2002 and 2014. The three past captains in the decision-making process were Clark, Paul McGinley and Jose Maria Olazabal. Thank you for tuning to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.57 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. Ghanaians head to the polls for presidential and parliamentary elections. The African Diaspora Forum concerned about comments attributed to Joburg City Mayor regarding foreign nationals. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Pumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Wiseman Mangaile, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, SMSs, plus 27-796-957-930, Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. We leave you with Stimela Sasezola by Mbonginingam. Sun, 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 sun,